Let's uh, bow our heads to pray, if we may. Lord, we ask this evening simply that you would speak to us from your word, because uh, where else would we rather be than uh, parked in front of your word this evening? Speak to us, we pray, therefore, because your servants are listening. Amen. Do you please sit? I had a a long drive to undertake uh, yesterday, uh, and uh, the radio was on pretty much constantly all the way through. And one uh, programme came up on political language. I've been away for uh, most of the aftermath of the riots uh, in England, Uh, so I I listened uh, to find out what was going on. And uh, there was an interview undertaken with uh, a student who'd just got uh, very good marks in political science uh, in her A-level. And uh, the interviewer played to her a tape of uh, a speech, I don't know how many he gave, but a speech anyway, that uh, the Prime Minister had given shortly after the riots. He talked about rebuilding responsibility and so on. And uh, then asked this student at high school, who just got uh, uh, through her political uh, A-level, said, well, what did you think about what David Cameron had to say? And she said, well, I would give him an A-plus for vagueness and a D-minus for content. And listening to the speech, I can, listening to the, the snippets I heard, I can well understand. There were lots of phrases that were motherhood and apple pie, Uh, but there was a very uh, considerable limitation on indication of of what anyone was going to do about all of this. But I felt terribly sorry for him. Uh, I'm old enough to go, uh, my memory goes back to uh, John Major, uh, a prime minister who at one point said he was going to take us back to basics. And whenever politicians get wrapped up in this area of broken Britain, or morality, or uh, back to basics. Their language uh, betrays them. They actually haven't a clue what to say. And I found that quite illuminating. Why is it that politicians struggle to say anything meaningful under those circumstances? It's got nothing to do with party, they all have the same problem. And the answer, partly, is reflected in our readings this evening. Because what's fundamentally wrong is about the, the, the issue is about what we worship, what the country and its members worship. And politicians know that if you start talking about what you worship, the values you hold, then you f- may find you're fundamentally disagreeing with someone, and that person with whom you fundamentally degree, disagree may end up not voting for you, and that would represent a major crisis. But what we've seen on the streets of uh, the UK over the last few weeks uh, represents a crisis of worship. What is it that we value? I don't mean in the sense of those going on riots held a strong uh, opinion about an alternative God to the one we know and celebrate when we're here tonight. Uh, Of course they didn't. What I mean is that the values of our society 
are expressed in patterns of life that we can call worship. And it's our society's worship that's gone fundamentally wrong. There is a moment in the New Testament, in the very early days of the church, you may know it, when two people have an inheritance, and a man and his wife, Annas and Sapphira, and they lay this inheritance at the foot of the apostles and say it's for the church. But they give the impression that they're laying the whole of their inheritance down. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the reality is very different. They're laying only part down. And they are actually, there and then, cursed for betraying and deceiving the church of God. And they die. And it is a very stark moment in the days of the early church. And that seemed to me the parallel that comes to mind in the starkness of our story this evening. I don't want you to turn straight to that. I want you to turn, first of all, if you would, to page 361. While you're doing that, this is, uh, comes towards the end of uh, uh, 1 Kings, uh, chapter 19. You'll know the story. <clears throat> Elijah, the main prophet before Elisha, has been in a contest with the rival prophets of Baal, uh, involving a sacrifice on the top of Mount Carmel. They've shown themselves weak and feeble. He has shown that uh, God... The Lord God, Yahweh, is strong and able. But then he's overcome by the intensity of this uh, victory, and he's very afraid of Ahab, the king, and he runs away. But then if you come to uh, chapter 19 uh, and page, uh, sorry, verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. God is giving him instructions, saying, now pick yourself up, uh, you've, you've had your crisis, um, now we're going to tell you what happens next. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. All that unfolds in the long reading that we had unfolds because of that prophecy and instruction on the part of Elijah. Ahab and his wife Jezebel have taken the country into appalling uh, levels of worship of fertility gods, put together under this general title of the Baals or Baal. And God is utterly determined to root out that false religion. But it's been massively entrenched. It's not just, as happened sometimes, that the kings said, well, we'll sort of follow Yahweh, but we won't do it very well because we kind of like disappearing to our private worship somewhere else. No, Ahab had erected a whole temple and a cult of Baal, had made it the official religion. And it's worth remembering that though I said it was appalling, there are many other and more appalling religions on display sometimes in the Old Testament. Baal worship was actually quite nice. It was quite comforting, as far as we can tell. It was a fertility religion, so you kind of paid for what you got. Um, it, it, it reassured you, told you the crops would come in, it told you what to do about it if they didn't, didn't. It was, all kind of, it was your basic meat and potatoes religion. 
And it's because it's so basic that God is so utterly determined to root it out and, and cut it off and destroy it. And that means destroying the house of Ahab. Destroying Ahab and any children of Ahab who might come in their father's wake to set up that religion again. God, a long time ago, and there are 20 years between these two moments, 1 Kings 19 and 2 Kings 9. For 20 years, God has known what is needed. You needed a strong king in Aram, or Syria, to overpower the military might of Israel. And you needed uh, a strong king in Israel uh, to deal with the false religion. Let me, because I, I, I certainly always have to do this sort of thing. Maybe you don't, uh, but in that case, I, I hope you'll forgive me. Let me just explain the, kind of the, the, the geography, really, of uh, how this story unpacks. There is a battlefront at a place called Ramoth-Gilead. If, you've got, if you're one of the lucky ones that has a church Bible with maps in the back, then go to the bit at the back that says the, story of, uh, the maps of the story of Jesus. But that's only about 50% of you. <clears throat> and... and uh, look to the east <clears throat> of the Sea of Galilee, and down a bit, and you'll see this place, Ramoth-Gilead. And that is on the battlefront between Syria, you see that Damascus isn't very far away, or Aram, of which Hazael is the king, the battlefront between Hazael and, and a coalition of the northern king, Joram, who was son of uh, Ahab, and the southern king, Ahaziah, who was uh, in Judah. And Joram and Ahaziah have been working together. They're normally enemies, but they worked together in coalition for the sake of keeping Hazael at bay. And and all of that happens today happens uh, uh, within the kind of arena of this battle line in Ramoth-Gilead. The other two places you need to know about are just west of there, about 30 miles west of there, across the River Jordan, is this place at Jezreel, where Ahab and Jezebel had their personal uh, palace. So what happens quite often in this story is you move from this battle line where the fighting people are, so that's where Jehu is and these army people, and, the command, and he's a commander there, but then when they, anyone needs to fall back, Joram and Ahaziah fall back to uh, Jezreel, though Ahaziah actually tries to fall back even further to Megiddo, which is west again. Of Jezreel. So that's the geography. Think of it as this battle zone, that's what you need to have in your mind, a battle zone where the armies are, and a, a, a back territory, Jezreel, where all the politics is going on. Hazael has been anointed, and we begin uh, the story of uh, chapter 9 with the anointing of Jehu. Elisha is doing what he's told. He says, go off to, uh, he instructs a, a young prophet, <clears throat> In this marvellous phrase, this is what the Lord says. Find Jehu, I I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run. I guess you don't want to hang around too long to find out what a Jehu, an army commander, uh, wants to do with what you've said. And it's 20 years that God has guarded this promise. And Elisha is now able to put it into effect. We have this moment through part, the early part of chapter 9. The whole house of Ahab is going to, to perish, Jehu is told. And it's going to be you that does it. Uh, God wants you to take over. Uh, Ahab, 
uh, is despised. Joram, his son, has lost authority, and you are going to take over. Jehu goes away and tries to disguise what's been said. Why did this madman come to you? Oh, you know the guy, says Jehu. No, 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 you're flanneling, they say. Tell us the truth. Well, Jehu says, I anoint you king over Israel. And so they uh, blow the trumpet and uh, announce Jehu is king. So uh, Jehu is uh, announced as king, uh, but the, the kings, uh, Joram and Ahaziah, are back in Jezreel. So he said, Jehu says, if this is the way you feel, don't let anyone slip out of the city, with the news, in other words. We need to make a battle plan to go back to Jezreel. But it's very important that we keep the circle, the boundary of information. I'm going to ride to Jezreel, and you get this long story of uh, messengers going out. You say, do you come in peace? Never mind, fall in behind me. And he turns up in Jezreel. And uh, Joram and, and Ahaziah go to meet him, and they understand the threat that he brings. How can there be peace? This is uh, 9, verse 22. How can there be peace as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? Treachery, treachery, uh, shout, uh, shouts out Joram. Joram is promptly shot with a bow, uh, and uh, Ahaziah is pursued and uh, dies later in Megiddo of his wounds. So if there's any comfort, we've nearly already dealt with most of the first chapter. Then we encounter Jezebel. Who knows what on earth she thought she was up to? She painted her eyes, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. What was she trying to do? I have no idea. No one knows what she was trying to do. Have you come in peace? And she calls him Zimri because he was, uh, it's, it's giving him the name of another well-known murderer. And he uh, arranges, he asks, who's on my side? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him, throw her down. And uh, the, the rest of that bit's pretty horrible. But it is a fulfillment of the prophecy from 20 years before. There are then two groups that he needs to deal with. He needs to deal with the political authorities, and he needs to deal with the spiritual authorities. He deals with the political authorities, all of whom are the sons of Ahab, 70 of them, in Jezreel, being brought up as uh, uh, potential heirs. I don't know what you do with 70 sons. Um, uh, but a- a- anyway, uh, 70 sons there are, and uh, he arranges for them all to be put to death. Um, uh, in, uh, there's that lovely moment, put the heads in two piles at the entrance of the city gate until morning. Uh, along the way, so far, he's killed Joram, he's killed Ahaziah, he's killed or arranged for the killing of Jezebel, he's killed for 70 sons of Ahab in Samaria, just to, almost as a byword along the way in chapter 10, we discover that he kills 42 relatives of Ahaziah. Then he deals with the spiritual authorities. He says, um, uh, Ahab served Baal a little. I'm going to serve Baal a lot. So guys, all get together and we'll have a Baal fest. So he pulls them all together, stations soldiers on the outside, and uh, uh, then arranges that everybody leaving the building is killed. So there's probably some hundreds of prophets that are put to death. He finds an ally in the middle of it all. And uh, to this ally, Jehonadab, Jehu says in his chariot, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. This is what zeal for the Lord looks like. What it has to look like. 
when there is such a tremendous peril to the worship of the one true God. That's how important it was. It's a cartoon story. There are times it's almost comic, but it is a terrible story, isn't it? It's a dreadful story. But that's how important it is that there should be a a fulfillment of that first command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. All this goes on as zeal for the Lord until one comes along who finally does worship with all his heart and mind and soul and strength. And he tells us what, what zeal is meant to look like. Jesus says, what zeal looks like is when I'm prepared, when uh, someone lays down their life for a friend. When you actually take up, suck up all that violence and mayhem and murder on yourself. Why would you stop coming to church? One of the biggest reasons that it happens is that we fall victim to the general assumption in the world around us that life's okay, really. Life's peaceable. Life's gentle. For us, anyway. So one of the lessons from this has to be from the sheer awful starkness of this story, let us not be sucked in, as those people were to Baal worship, by that kind of gentle, mild, uh, tolerant worship that goes on all around us. Because the worship of the one true God is still at stake. Don't be tempted into sentimentality. Now, I hope this won't be the only thing you, you remember from this talk. But it does seem to me relevant just to say something personal. As some of you know, I came back um, early from holiday uh, because my father was dying. And actually, while I was on, uh, on the way back to England, he died. So I've been... Uh, one of the reasons this is, uh, doesn't have as much preparation as I'd like is because I got to it rather late. Um, But I've been staying with my father's partner up in the Wirral for a few days. And she's got lots of cards. And it is horrifying, the sentimental tosh that people write in cards, uh, commiserating with you on the loss of someone, when there is no personal spiritual faith behind it. People write the, the, the things that they hope will help. But how can they help? Because there is no validity behind any of them. The one that most got me was the one, and it comes up in, a various, in various ways, where one person and, and others said something like it, at least you know he is now at rest. How do you know that? What evidence is there that he's at rest? I've got no evidence that he's at rest at all. And I think it is important that when, the reason I want to say something personal is because it is impossible to get tempted into that kind of sentimentality at a time like this. To say, well, though I know of no moment when my father turned to Christ, uh, that somehow it's all all right. I have no confidence that it's all right. My confidence is that the God I have got to know, I have known in the face of Jesus Christ, and I trust him. 
But I have no other confidence, and I see no reason for writing Tosh at the bottom of a commiseration letter, because they have nothing else to say. So let us not be tempted into the sentimentality that the world throws at us, that this other worship, other religion, other values, let's have the confidence to name them as drivel. Because of stories like this, that tell us the worship of the one true God, the one true worship of the one true God matters, and matters more than anything else. When we proclaim the message that is opened up to us in John chapter 15 of the love of God in Christ, it is not merely invitation, it is also command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You shall, you shall, it is a command. Although we may couch it more, pe- more carefully than that, these stories are here in all their terrible starkness to show us that until Jesus comes and shows us a perfect answer, zeal looks like many things. Zeal for the Lord God and his uh, one true worship is what drives this story. God will not finally compromise with Ahab and the Baals. And neither should we, which seems a good point to pray. Lord, we go into a world as we leave one another's company this evening in which all kinds of things are said about values, in which politicians start to babble incoherently when they try to address the values that drive our society. Because in truth they have nothing to say. As we're reminded from this story of the sheer starkness of how much it matters to you that there shall be the true worship of the true God. Remind us of how much it all matters. Take from us any easy settling down into the value systems of the world around us. And let us in our generation show what it means to be zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For we know that in him and in his Son there is the only possibility of life everlasting. Amen.